true crime can be a little heavy. I would know. I used to be a forensic scientist. But that's where a good old-fashioned self-care podcast comes into play. This is Erica from the Behind the Silk podcast, a show dedicated to help you prioritize yourself and explore different self-care practices. If you want to take a break from all the murder talk and take some time to pour into yourself, give episode 32 a listen where we do a sound bath session to help you unwind and de-stress, something I'm sure we can all appreciate. Now, let's get into the real reason that you're here, the crime podcast where your hosts, Samantha and Caitlin, discuss true crime cases from across Scotland and the UK. Whether it be the most gruesome, infamous, or downright mysterious cases, they want to talk about it and you definitely want to listen. Hi, and welcome to The Crime Pod. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Sam. This week, we are going on a journey with this case, to be fair. I'd heard about this, but never really fully looked into it. And there's some parts that are going to sound so mentally untrue, but they are true. So this week, I'm going to tell you the case of the Pottery Cottage murders. Samantha, does this ring any sort of bell for you at all? No. Okay. None at all. <laughs> Which sometimes it's like, oh, but actually that's quite good. It means you get to join the journey with everyone else. Um, as I'd said, yeah, this is quite a wild one. I did think about doing it in two parts, but I know how much I hate a two-parter. I know that you hate a two-parter. Um, and I don't mind like doing a two-parter if you release on the same day. So I was like, oh, I'll do that and release on the same day. But then I'm like, what a bloody waste of time. I might as well just make one bit longer um, and just put it in one episode. I've also not cut stuff out, but just there's some details that I could have gone into that just aren't necessary to the story to extend it to two parts. So anyway, me talking like this is probably going to make it two parts. But Yeah, know. exactly. Get to sorry. the point. I'm no. sorry, everyone. Okay, so to start the story, I'm going to have to tell you about the villain in our story, which is a man called William Hughes. Now, William Hughes was born on the 8th of August 1946 in Preston in Lancashire. He was the first of six children and lived with his parents, Thomas and Mary. He had not much interest in his education and his academic performance wasn't great. But I don't think this was really rare in like 50s, 60s educated children. Like, I think there were so many other opportunities and potentials without education. There still is now, but I think it's more of a societal norm to complete school. Whereas back then, I think if you weren't really into your education and stuff, like it was fine. Like my granddad was born, I know he was born like, what, 10 years before William? And he's very openly like, nah, just didn't go to school. And I'm like, okay. Whereas here, like, you just couldn't do that. Um, he was but you could walk into a job like yeah my gran left when she was like 15 and she left a job then she went into another one the next day you know it was a lot different and if you didn't have money or you weren't going to uni because you didn't have money etc you know it was much okay you're going to be a tradie or yeah whereas now you're like I just like a really average desk job please and they're like do you have advanced higher maths and you're like, yeah, <laughs> no. So it is. I think there's a lot more pressure. Whereas, so knowing that he wasn't interested in his education, I don't think that really tells us anything. He was, however, prone to antisocial behaviour, and he was known to be a petty criminal from a young age. He was first arrested um, at the age of 14 for theft. 
Um, he left school officially at 15, but as you said about your gran, he's just jumped into jobs. He failed to hold down a job for any kind of period of time. And he actually ended up going to an approved school and later went on to a borstal due to his criminal behaviour. Um, I was going to explain what a borstal is, but I'm sure we have done it before. So it is kind of just like a kind of youth detention centre, kind of like a young offenders unit. But obviously years ago, we don't really call them that now. Would you say that's right? Yeah, so? I agree with you. Yeah, and also I think a lot of our early episodes, we discuss a borstal because... A lot of the time, I don't know if it's just coincidence, but serial killers have ended up in a borstal before, oh, you know, life. I'm confused yeah. by that. Um, yes, yeah, so even though he got out obviously at the borstal when he was an adult, this didn't really change him and he received his first of multiple prison sentences in 1966. Now, a lot of his criminal offences involved violence. He was quite a violent man, so he gradually earned the nickname Mad Billy. In 1972, he married his fiancée, Jean, who was a mother of one, and he'd actually proposed to her while he was in prison at HMP Walton. So they had got engaged while he was in prison. He obviously got out of prison and they got married and had a daughter, um, Nicola. Now, initially, the couple's relationship was fine. Like, it was obviously fine. But as, again, we hear about most you know, serial killers or most people that are involved in this kind of world, it, really, it gradually became full of abuse, violence, and he began cheating as well. Now, the following year, he was actually sentenced to three and a half years imprisonment um, as he was convicted of four counts of assaulting, um, sorry, four counts of assault causing actual bodily harm um, because he assaulted two police officers who had stopped his car and discovered loads of drugs in the boot. Um, he obviously assaulted the two officers as he resisted arrest and ended up being chased. So he ended up in prison for three and a half years because of this. Now, obviously, he was released early from custody in 1976. And when he gets out, he just abandons his wife and child in the March. Like, literally, he's like, been in prison, had a thing, don't want to be with you anymore. And just completely abandons them, gets a new girlfriend and moves to Chesterfield with this girlfriend, Teresa O'Doherty. Five months later, on the 21st of August, 1976, he had followed a young couple who had he'd met in like in a nightclub. Like he just like met them in a nightclub. I don't know if there was much relationship. I don't know if they when I say met, I don't know if it's one of those with like you know when you just like bump into someone at a bar. I don't know if they stood and had a drink. I generally don't know. But he followed them into a local park. He beat the man about the head with a brick, so he was unconscious. He then dragged the partner to a nearby riverbank and he raped her at knife point. What the fuck? But yeah. You know, so following like obviously a big public appeal because they couldn't identify him again. It's the seventies. Um, the police received an anonymous tip off, and William was arrested, charged, and he went to HMP Leicester on the twenty seventh of August. So again, quick turnaround. He's away at actual prison six days later, which again is mad how quick it all just was back then. Now, he had be, he'd spoke to his girlfriend, Therese, on the phone quite a lot from prison. I don't know how I would feel if my boyfriend went to prison. Like, I generally don't know. It depends what it would be for. But if it was for assaulting a man and then raping a woman, I don't think I would maintain the relationship. But they did, no. it, they did to start. However, shortly into his prison sentence, Theresa ended the relationship and actually moved to a different address in Chesterfield. Now... Even though he had an extensive history of violent behaviour, he has raped this woman, he has assaulted this man, he has had loads of police stints, you know, the whole mad uh, prison stints, sorry, the whole mad Billy nickname. 
he was categorised as a cat B inmate and was allocated work in the prison kitchen. So a cat B inmate basically means someone that they don't think is at complete high risk. So on the 3rd of December 1976, he stole a seven and a half inch boning knife and kept it concealed inside a small tear in the base of his mattress. Now, all the people that were in the kitchen when it went missing had sub, um, had like hundreds of searches on their um, like prison rooms and stuff, and they weren't able to find it. Like, they did not find this knife. So I don't know what kind of fucking searches they were doing, but they didn't find this knife. They were obviously shy. So, at around 7am on the 12th of January 1977, William made a phone call to Teresa from the phone in HMP Leicester. Now, in this phone call, he taunted her by saying, like, um, kind of just saying that he'd seen her efforts to change her address and all this and yada yada yada. Um, he also sarcastically revealed that he had duped a direct and inquiries lady into providing him with her new address. So it's kind of like subtle threats. Um, I'm sure as well. I kind of cut it out because it was a longer bit of story, but she had to go as like a character witness at a hearing for him and provide like a positive character witness, and she didn't turn up. So he was heard shouting, like, you fucking bitch and stuff down the phone to her. It kind of reminded me of the Raoul Moat case. Do you know when he was, like, taunting her and phoning her from inside prison and they were having that? Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and what it plus, gave me the vibe of. Yeah, you'd think you'd be put into witness protection or something, but, I mean, obviously, it, I guess they thought he wasn't as crazy as he is, so... Yeah, yeah. totally. Now... He kind of then has this argument with her on the phone, hangs up on the phone and goes like straight to the kitchen and does his wee job. And I'm like, oh, that's like a quick turnaround. And everyone was like, he just like literally snapped out of it, went to the kitchen, done his job. Now, later that morning, he was driven from the prison to appear at Chesterfield Magistrates Court for a remand hearing. Now, he was transported to the court via taxi um, with two prison officers, Donald, Sp- Donald Sprintall and Kenneth Simmons. Now, I was so confused by taxi but that is how it was so like they would go in a taxi it wasn't an uncommon thing for a prisoner especially a happy prisoner to be taken via taxi to the court which obviously now it's like these fucking massive vans and everything but back then that was just an easy way to transport them now he was um, frisked and handcuffed and placed in the back seat of the taxi um with kenneth simmons and donald sprintle sat in the front passenger seat and then obviously the taxi driver now, the method of handcuffing meant that he is handcuffed to one officer. So, like, his right hand was handcuffed to um, Kenneth Simmons' left hand, for example. So, it means he does have one hand free. Um, the weather conditions were poor on that day. It was heavy snow, um, which meant that the general traffic was quite slow along the route. And it was actually 55 miles to the court, which is quite a lot. Um, William, like, he was fine. Like, William was engaging in small talk. He was chatting away. But then between Junction 25 and 26 with the M1, he said he didn't need to use the bathroom. Now, the prison officers allowed the vehicle to pull into a service station. William used the opportunity to then go to the toilet. But he then retrieved the stolen boning knife that he had hidden um, and basically made it more accessible, put it in his sleeve, and then was handcuffed again to Simmons. Now, they then start back on their journey again on the M1, brings out the knife and attacks both prison officers inside the vehicle. He first attacks Sprintle, so um, that was, what do you call 
his first name, that's so good, I'm so sorry, Donald Sprintle, um, who was sitting in the front passenger seat, so obviously he's in front of him, he stabs the back of his neck and actually just narrowly missed his spine. He then turns to Kenneth, who's sitting next to him, and slashes him across the jaw and hand. Now, both the um, prison's officers are incapacitated, and he was forced like to take the handcuffs were taken off him and he held the knife to the prison officer's throat as he did this and then he held the prison knife so held a knife sorry to the taxi driver david reynolds throat to basically tell him to continue driving along the a617 for just a short distance then basically dumped him like got rid of the taxi driver got rid of the badly injured officers on the roadside took the vehicle and off he went he then proceeded to drive for only a short distance. He then crashed the vehicle into a wall and then he fled on foot into Billy Moor. So this, as you know what a moor is, is this massive open land, basically. But remember, it's snowing. It's horrific. So the vehicle was discovered abandoned about an hour later. And that's when they're kind of, OK, like this is all starting. So the police are notified of his escape at about 10, 11 a.m., the immediate search was led by Chief Inspector Pete House and at the scene the police dogs were unable to pick up any scent because the heavy snowfall had already concealed any footprints that were there. There was no witnesses to the crash as the roads were deserted basically due to the snow. So investigators just believed and decided that the most likely scenario is that he'd be going towards Bealey, um and decided to search the A6 as they're like it's very unlikely he's going to head onto the vast open moors. Um, in this weather, so they didn't even bother checking the moors, which is exactly where he'd gone. So he made his way over the four miles of exposed moorland, even though there was a massive blizzard, even though like it was just horrific weather. Um, so they headed across like all of that for about two hours, and then he reached Baslow Road East Moor, which is just kind of close to the A619 road. Now, he sees a residence and decides to go. Now, Pottery Cottage so North End Farm is the main bit of land and this was converted into an 18th century pottery barn on the edge of the Peak District National Park in Eastmoor. Now the property had been converted into three homes um, with the Moran and Minton families moving into one end of the property in 1969. So that family converted the property into three living units and renamed this Pottery Cottage. Other end of the property was occupied by two school teachers named Leonard and Joyce, and the central section was unoccupied. So that is the kind of main area of where the story is going to take place. So as I said, the Moran and Minton families moved into one part of the property on Pottery Cottage. So I'm going to tell you a bit more about who they are. Again, there are more family members, but I'm just going to tell you who is involved in this story. So living at home was a retired couple, Arthur and Amy Minton. So they're 72 and 68 years old. Now they have two daughters, but they live with one called Gillian, who's a secretary. Gillian married her husband, Richard, who was a sales director, and they adopted a child, Sarah, who was 10. So this is our family in Pottery um, Cottage. Arthur and Amy as the, let's say, the grandparents. Gillian and Richard are the parents. And Sarah is the youngest of the family. Now, Arthur and Amy were at home at Pottery Cottage when William just basically walks through the back door of the property armed with two axes that he has retrieved from their shed. Can you fucking imagine? It's like, do you know, probably by that I'd point... I'd be shitting about, myself. Yeah, it's probably about noon. Just a wee retired couple just, like, living their best life in their house and the next minute this guy walks in, you would you would just be like, holy shit. 
and you would just be like, what the fuck? And he basically says, he's really open. He's like, I'm on the run for the police. I've stabbed two prison officers um, and I need to lay low basically until night time. And he says, if you cooperate with me, I won't harm you. I'm just going to stay here till night time. So obviously they can't be like, no. So they're like, right, okay. Now Gillian then arrives home um, and she gets home about 3pm after work to find this guy. And is like, oh, right, okay. About half an hour later, Sarah gets off her school bus and enters the property. Now, to obviously not panic her, she's only 10. Gillian says that William was a stranded motorist waiting for his car to be repaired. The two kind of exchange smiles, like everything's kind of pretty weirdly normal in this kitchen. It's not like he's standing looking like, I think by this point he's put the axes down, but it's all just quite normal. And as I said, like the adults are making small talk over coffee. And Sarah's so casual, she sits on the floor and begins sewing. Like, this is a very normal setup. William's just, like, joined the family almost. Shortly thereafter, um, Sarah and her granddad actually leave the room and go and watch television. So they are just like, nah, they go. So obviously the grandfather, that's it, is Arthur. But the two of them leave the room and go and watch television. Now, in a witness statement, William's behaviour in the initial hours is really calm. He like sets up almost a domesticated scene and it was said, quote, up to this time, his manner was friendly. However, you could tell he was becoming agitated because we're waiting for Richard to get home and he's obviously taking his time and he's getting like, what is going on? Now, Richard arrives from a business meeting in Birmingham at about 6pm to find William holding the knife to his wife's throat, threatening to kill her if anyone approached him. Now, this is probably because he was feeling feeding Richard the most because Richard's probably the only one in that family that could have really kind of competed with him. Did, does that make sense? Like probably that the retired couple weren't going to batter him. It's probably Richard that he's been quite worried about coming back. Now, yeah. he forces Richard to the floor and bounds his hands and legs with like a wire cut from the vacuum cleaner and a washing line. He then ties up Gillian and Amy with similar cords. Now, Amy's distress drew Arthur and Sarah from the annex. So they come back through and Arthur shouting, like, don't touch them, leave them alone. Sarah shouts, don't hurt my mum and dad. Like, I'm, and they're kind of obviously at this point, like, what has happened? William then throws Arthur to the ground before dragging this poor pensioner across the floor, put him in his armchair and bound him. And Sarah's obviously just sat there, like, what is happening at this point? He then gags all the adults and isolates them in separate bedrooms before taking Sarah through to her grandparents' bedrooms. So on the first night, all five hostages are in different areas of the house, bound and gagged. So Gillian is in her own bedroom. Amy is in Sarah's bedroom. Richard is in the spare room. Sarah is in her grandparents' bedroom. And Arthur is down the stairs in the living room. Now, at one stage in the evening, Gillian heard the sounds of a disturbance from the lounge and she couldn't work out what it was and then realised that it was actually her dad, Arthur, being beaten by William. William then made tea for his hostages, so took tea. So he basically made everyone a cup of tea and took the cup around everyone. But when he went to Gillian, while she was drinking her tea, he actually went on to sexually assault her. I don't know if it was rape, but it's definitely quoted as sexual assault. He then spent the rest of the night chatting away. Richard, who was bound in the room, basically just talking about his criminal past, just basically talking about how he's ended up here, how many times he's been in jail, yada, yada. It was quoted that he was talking to Richard as if like he'd just met someone down the pub, not that he has taken him hostage in his own home. So the next day, the 13th of January, 1977, 
the Peak District had seen like the heaviest snowfall recorded in 50 years. So many roads were cut off and the blizzard conditions were forecast basically being like, do not leave your house. So he couldn't obviously go. That was his plan was to leave that night. But obviously William couldn't go. About half seven in the morning, a local authority vehicle arrived to empty the property septic tank. Now, William directed Gillian outside to greet the two council workers and warned her to deal with them and act normal. Now, at this point, like, she goes out. She deals with them. She doesn't say anything. She doesn't give any hint that anything is wrong. And that's them gone. Now, Gillian briefly observes her dad in the living room sitting in the same chair as the night before, but he is covered with a coat now. She noticed that he was motionless and said he wasn't moving and I couldn't see if he was injured or bleeding. So we don't actually know what state he was in at that time. He then instructed her, so William instructed her to phone her employee and call in sick. And then he had to, she had to call Sarah's school to say that she was also unwell. She asked where Sarah was and William said she was still asleep in the annex, like she was fine, she was doing okay. Richard was then forced to call his place of work to advise that he would also be ill and Gillian was then ordered to drive to Chesterfield to purchase newspapers, cigarettes and check for roadblocks. With William cautioning her at the doorway to the property, I've got your family here, Jill. Don't do anything stupid. So she does. She goes, she gets the cigarette, she gets the papers, checks for roadblocks and comes home. She doesn't alert anybody. She doesn't contact the police, she doesn't do anything. What is your thoughts on that, Sam? Because at first I was like, what are you doing? That's so stupid, like, go. But then I'm like, you must have been in such fear that he had somebody watching you. He had something like that. But then at the same time, I'm like, why didn't you go to the police? No, I'm with her. I'm with Gillian. I would have done the exact same. Because yeah. you don't know what he's going to do. And yeah, you get the police and they'll be like, right. And you're like, do not show up or like, come slyly. Because obviously I'm not supposed to be telling you, but then that doesn't mean that he's not going to see the police because let's be honest, they're not always sly. And <laughs> then he kills you all. So yeah, no, I yeah. would have done what she did. Yeah, no, I do. I think it's just so easy in hindsight to be like, why wouldn't you go into like, do you know, I'd like to think that I would go into a police station and say like, listen, this is what's happening. Don't come now, but like come in an hour, come in an unmarked car and pretend you're somebody else. Do you know, but obviously it's, that's not how it works. They're not going to be like, okay, nobody, see you later. Yeah, they're going to so, be like, fuck off. <laughs> yeah, we're sending the right band. You're like, no. Um, when Gillian returned to Potty Cottage, she noticed that her dad was no longer in the lounge armchair. Um, and William said that he had gone to his bedroom. So he moved fine. William then asked Gillian to cook a proper meal for himself and her family. So her and Amy, so her and her mum, would cook meals and do this. And they did this for the next like day or so. On one occasion, Gillian did keep asking why her daughter, like, where was she? Obviously, and asked why her daughter had not asked for her, quote, comfort towel, which was basically, like, it was, like, obviously one of those, you know, like, a blanket. Like, she's got a small grey elephant as well, but it's, like, a blanket that she'd obviously had since she was a baby. William shrugged and was just like, she hasn't, before agreeing to take the items through to the bedroom. So Gillian said, like, please, can I go through and see her? And he said, no, you're not allowed to see her, but said that um, Sarah was really pleased to see those items. After reassuring Gillian, Richard and Amy that he basically was going to leave that evening, William untied them before asking, you got any cards? In the next few hours, the four played several games of gin rummy and they drank a bottle of whiskey. And at one point, William began teaching the hostages how to play like a game he had learned. Um, 
a game called Patience, you know, the Chinese version. That's when I'm like, what is going on? Like, they're playing card games for hours. Yeah, but you have to. You don't have a choice in this situation. <laughs> I know, but that's when I'm like, how bizarre. Yeah. Like, this is just a mental thing. Um, but to make clear as well, this is Gillian, Richard and Amy. There is still no sign of Arthur, who is apparently asleep in his room, and Sarah is still in the annex. Now, later that evening, William actually left the property twice for his prep to escape. So firstly, he took both Richard and Gillian with him to test Richard's car, which was a Chrysler 180, um, which he was going to use for his getaway. Then when they came back with that car, he took Gillian alone to Sutton and Ashfield in the early hours of the morning. And he was basically planning to collect some money that a friend owed him, um, who had previously committed a burglary with him to be like his escape cash, blah, blah, blah. Um, the region was still like experiencing really heavy snowfall, so the driving conditions were still really, really bad. So William said he was going to remain at Pottery Cottage for a second night. Gillian again that night inquired as to Sarah and how her daughter was doing. And again, William was like, she's fine. And Sarah was like, but she must be like so frightened. And William was like, no, she's fine. Like She's generally fine. She's not bothered. On the morning of the 14th of January, William ordered Gillian to prepare tea and toast for everyone. And at this time, again, we still only have Gillian, Richard and Amy and William. Sarah and Arthur still haven't been seen that morning. And he then informs Richard and Gillian that he needs supplies to assist his escape. He then asks Richard and Gillian to drive into Chesterfield and purchase the supplies that he would need while on the run, which was food, cigarettes, a camping gas stone and fuel. He gave them £25 that he'd actually stolen from the couple days earlier and said, while you're out, please buy a nice present for Sarah. So Richard and Gillian go out alone, the two of them, head out, just the two of them. And while approaching a red traffic light, Richard turns to Amy and uh, turns to Gillian and is like, let's go to the police. Like, we need to go to the police. This has been two days. We need to go to the police. But she refuses and says, like, the same as you, the family are still in the house. Like, we don't know what could happen if we go to the police anything could happen so she refuses they purchase all the items and they go back to Pottery Cottage. William had spent much of that afternoon preparing to leave again he took plates of food and other items through to uh, for Sarah and for Arthur so he did give them food but at about 6pm William announced almost everything was ready for his escape but he just needed more money. He asked Richard if there was any cash um, in the house and there wasn't but there was cash at the plastics manufacturing firm where he worked um, and was told to basically go and get it. So the Morans then drove him to Breck Plastics. He stole about £210, which is the equivalent of about £1,350 today, um, from some wage packets and petty cash at the company safe. He then got the couple to drive him back to Pottery Cottage, where again, he bound Richard, packed his supplies into the family Chrysler, and said he was leaving, but he was taking Gillian as a hostage with him, um, and said, as he previously promised, that she would be released to return home once he had driven a reasonable distance from the property. So again, this is like if she'd set up for police to like capture him as they were leaving. So he has thought these things through. William and Gillian leave Pottery Cottage that evening and drive for several miles when William then insists on returning to the house, claiming he'd forgotten his map. Now, when he enters the home, he fatally stabs both Richard and Amy with the boning knife that he'd previously retrieved from the prison kitchen. Upon his return to the car, the Chrysler fails to start. 
Now, he is obviously in a state at this point. Like, he's obviously not forgot a map. He's gone in to kill those two witnesses, and he's obviously planning on killing Gillian. But he tells Gillian to go to her neighbours and request assistance for the car because the car's not starting. He obviously can't go over and they don't know who he is. So he's like, you need to go to your neighbours and request assistance for the car. Now, both Leonard and Joyce quickly got that something was wrong with Gillian, who by this stage was practically insane from how scared she was. Gillian informed the couple that are um, basically saying, like, this is what's happening. And she actually then told them what happened. She basically just said this is what the family's predicament was and was like, you need to help us. The couple who had no phone immediately just left their house and drove at high speed to the nearest phone box to call the police. So William and Gillian are just waiting in the car and they're just obviously waiting. She's saying that they're the way to get help or whatever. And then all of a sudden, a blood-soaked Amy had climbed through a window and is staggering towards the vehicle. Now, she collapses before she can reach the car, but obviously Gillian's in, like, what the fuck is happening? Like, her mum is lying in the snow, bleeding out after being fatally stabbed. William then drags Gillian from the car and says the two need to make a run for it. So they arrive at the home of another neighbour, a mechanic, Ronald Frost, who William asks for assistance in towing the vehicle with his pickup to get the car going. Now, Ronald agrees, although he can understand, like, he can see that Gillian's being held captive and deliberately prolongs the process as much as he can while his wife, Madge, contacts the police from their house as well. However, Ronald successfully gets the, cha- uh, the Chrysler going and they sped away. Now, having been alerted of the whereabouts of this hostage situation at Pottery Cottage, police officers basically are deployed to locations around the area and they actually arrive at Pottery Cottage at 9pm that night. Now, they discover Amy Minton's body practically covered in snow, lying face up in the garden. The bodies of Richard, Sarah and Arthur were then discovered inside the house. Each had died as a result of both shock and multiple stat wounds inflicted to their throat and chest. Richard was discovered lying bound. He was still bound and face down on the landing. Now, Sarah's body was discovered in the the fetal position um, on her grandparent's bedroom floor and Arthur was discovered down the stairs with his arms bound behind his back um, and he was underneath a white overcoat. Now, due to both physical and circumstantial evidence at the crime scene, it revealed that although Williams had said that Amy was um, had said that Sarah and Arthur were fine and he was giving them food, etc., they had most likely been murdered either the night he arrived or the early hours of the following morning. So they have been dead the whole time, and he's just deceived Amy Gillian and Richard that they were still alive. Although William had managed to leave Pottery Cottage and had managed to get somewhere um, before the police had arrived the Chrysler was soon observed doing high speed along the A619 so of course he's trying to make a run for it he's obviously not driving properly so people are going to notice this car especially in the weather conditions people have been told not to drive and all of a sudden he's going out and just speeding along the road so I can't imagine that he's not going to be unnoticed. Now Police cars soon catch up with the vehicle and this becomes a high-speed multiple car chase across Derbyshire um, and it progressed into Cheshire. At one stage of the pursuit, an unmarked police car cut in front of the Chrysler, causing William to swerve and crash into a wall. To confirm as well, that is the second wall he has crashed into in our story. Um, So his driving's not great, um, so he's crashed into another wall. 
Now, the two officers inside the vehicle run towards the Chrysler, one to basically find William threatening to murder Gillian if they approach any further. William then drags Gillian from the vehicle, forces the two officers to surrender their vehicle to him, gets in, puts Gillian in the passenger seat, and they drive away again. Another so, car! He needs another, to stop. Uh-huh, another car. He's off. So he's actually managed to get this police car, and he's off. The police are like, what is going on? So at about 10pm, he attempts to avoid a single-decker bus, which had actually been positioned horizontally as like a roadblock um, at the road into the village of Reno. So the police have used this bus to be like a roadblock and he cannot get past it. He attempts to swerve around the bus, loses control of the car, (laughs) spins the police car around, mounts a curb and crashes into a... Whoa. It does, yes, into a dry oh stone wall. Lord. So it's our third wall, third and final wall. Now he's obviously rapidly surrounded by numerous police and he holds an axe over Gillian's head and he is screaming threats, demanding a vehicle in which to escape to be parked directly alongside the police car, facing in the direction of Macclesfield and a safe passage to drive from the scene. So he like he isn't being like, Okay, you got me. Like, I'll surrender now. He is very much like, no, no, what you're going to do is you're going to get me another car. You're going to have it here and I am going to leave with my hostage. So firearms officers start getting into place. The chief inspector, Pete House, is beginning the hostage negotiations and is even offered himself as an alternative hostage if William agrees, Gillian. Which, to confirm, in this day and age would not be okay for the... Chief Inspector to be like, let go of your hostage and just take me hostage. I don't think that is a safe work practice. But at that time, Gillian's probably in complete shock. She is like, honestly, by this point, I actually don't know what is going through her head, which then shows as a getaway vehicle is provided midway through the standoff, but Gillian refuses to move. Like, she actually is just in this point, like, just kill me. Like, my mum is dead. I probably know the rest of my family are dead. I cannot do this anymore. Like, can you imagine her in that car during those high-speed chases twice to then be like, here's another car? You would just be like, I'm not doing it. Like, I am absolutely not doing it. And I do stand by her with that. I think she has put up with so, so much. She has, you know, she has been hauled about these cars. She has done whatever and I think the fact that she is like I am not going I totally totally stand with that um but as you can imagine it's about 50 minutes of negotiations William's patience completely snaps he's like right your time's up and he swings the axe towards Gillian's head so as he has swung the axe at Gillian's head Peter House has jumped through the rear window of the vehicle and basically tried to grab the weapon so he took most of the blow and it only just gashed Gillian's forehead the firearms officer named Frank Pell fired one shot through the shattered rear passenger window and this deflected off William's skull William then struck Peter House again with the axe um, once on the arm and then as Gillian was like cowering against the road of the vehicle he bit Peter House's arm and continued to attempt to strike Gillian A further three rounds were fired and the last entered William's shoulder, 
passed through his aorta and killed him. Now, his body fell across Julian's lap and the fatal shot was fired by an officer named Alan Nichols. And that was it. It was over, basically. But I cannot imagine being Julian in that car as he is lying on top of you. I, I, ju- I just can't imagine, basically. So that is it kind of comes to an end there. That is the hostage system done um, thing done hostage situation not system hostage situation done annoyingly William is dead so he's never going to serve time for what he done um, but I'm not going to finish the story there I'm going to kind of tell you some more bits of the aftermath of the Pottery Cottage murders so there was obviously a prison service inquiry so on the 10th of March 1977 the Chief Inspector of the Prison Service Gordon Fowler published a 57 page report on the systematic failings which had allowed William Hughes to escape from prison. So it criticises the management and staff at HMP Leicester regarding their failure to pursue standard searching procedures after he had stolen the knife from the prison more than a month before his escape. As I said, he hid it in his mattress. They didn't. What kind of searches are they doing if they couldn't find a knife in a mattress? So Yeah, I think... and I get... Sorry to interrupt. No, you're okay. Like... A bone and knife as well. It's um, mm-hmm. obviously I don't one hundred percent know if I'm talking nonsense, but it's a very thin, sharp blade. Like, mm-hmm. and um, that needs to like surely you would be looking in things for that. And if you couldn't find it, you wouldn't just move on from the situation. You'd be like, nah, we need to be more thorough. There is something. But yeah, well, that's what they were saying. Like the blade was about fifteen centimeters. Yeah, and. They moved away. They just was like, oh, we can't find it. Yeah, and it is literally used to remove meat from bones. I don't have a boning knife in my house, just to confirm. I don't know if you've got one, Sam. No, I've got many a cooking knife, but that's just because I'm not a one-pot girl. But, but I um, don't know why a prison then does. Knife. Well, because they probably had, like, fish and etc., they probably had to it's more like we buy our stuff in a packet it's already done they probably didn't and they'd have to use it to cook the dinners and also it's back in the 70s as well it wasn't very yeah fair because I was thinking like health and safety wise they shouldn't have a knife that's that like like accessible to prisoners yeah but if you're like yeah like him you're supposed to you're supposed to be uh, yeah be fine but category B is it not you're supposed yeah. to be okay to work it's fine yeah so failings crazy, on that yeah. part too yeah absolutely crazy now the obviously he was critical of the search message you search method used before prison transfers um so recommended strip searches in all future cases again he's then managed to get the knife with him into that car and they just hadn't checked they patted him down before he got in the car and just didn't find the knife which is just mental. Um, they also criticised the Derbyshire Constabulary because they concentrated their search upon routes from Chesterfield to Lanchester, uh, Lancaster, sorry, um, Lancashire, Lancashire, different place, Lancashire, in the belief that he most likely be heading in that direction. So due to the weather conditions, the police and media gave serious credence to the possibility that he had went to a local household as well, right? So obviously, let's go back to that. They said he wouldn't go through the moors. He did. That's bad. But they also said due to the weather conditions, he must have gone into a local household and maybe holding occupants, occupant seeds or whatever, hostage. 
So this was released to the media and the police were aware that he's probably got someone hostage on the first day of the search. House-to-house checks were conducted through villages um, within the search radius, and this included Bealey and Rosley. However, Pottery Cottage was located 200 yards to the north of the search radius. So was not searched. I'm not good with measurements, but that That is small. I just wonder how they then ruled that out of like, nah, I won't have gone there. Like, I wonder, like, obviously the Moors, they made that decision assuming the weather and that was wrong. But I don't understand how you can make a search radius of houses and be like, nah, this is our radius. Like, I just think that is a massive fuck up. Now, yeah. going back to the, the popo, the shooting of, Hugh, um, of William Hughes provided to be the first occasion an officer from a Derbyshire constabulary had fatally shot a suspect and the first instance in which British police had shot dead an escaped armed and dangerous prisoner. Now, the responsibility for arranging the funeral fell to the Home Office and initial plans were devised for William Hughes to be buried at Chesterfield's Boythorpe Cemetery on the 25th of January. However, this made it out into the news and this fired protests from local residents who did not wish him to be buried in their local cemetery and insisted he be basically taken to HMP Leicester and be done like whatever done with them with inmates who had previously been executed at this location so they've obviously got like you know the furnace and stuff there local residents actually vowed to basically if he was buried there to bring up his corpse and do all this kind of shit with it if they buried him there and several residents actually refilled the burial site which had already been prepared and scheduled for the funeral before attaching a set of chains tied with a padlock to the cemetery gates and hanging a board signed by scores of local residents protesting their decision to bury him in that cemetery. Now, these protests led to the proposed funeral plans to be altered at the last minute, and his body was later cremated. The service was conducted, however, at the same location as those who he had murdered. So, yeah. But enough about him. Like, we've spent too long talking about him. I'm going to go back to the family at Pottery Cottage. So, both prior and immediately after receiving medical treatment at the hospital, Gillian repeatedly had asked for the welfare of her family, although police and medical staff delayed telling her this information until they made sure she was okay, which I understand but at the same time like she's asking if they're all okay and they cannot tell her that she is the only survivor. She was not informed of the fate of her parents, husband and child until she was kind of checked off by the hospital. The funeral service for Richard and Sarah and Arthur and Amy was conducted at Birmingham, uh, Brimington, sorry, Cemetery, Chesterfield on Friday the 21st of January 1977. Over 100 mourners attended the service and Gillian and her sister Barbara, who is the person I never mentioned in case we got confused with names, uh, were driven to the funeral in a black um, damlier accompanied by a police escort. In efforts to distract the media, the women were actually required to switch vehicles midway to the service because it was that much of a media circus at the time. The same day as the funerals of those that killed, like those killed at Portie Cottage, an ATV journalist conducted an interview with Teresa O'Doherty, right? So on the day of the funeral, this TV interview or whatever is also published. In this interview, Teresa O'Doherty discusses the aspects of her relationships with William Hughes um, and basically said, quote, all I can say is, I wish to God it'd be me and not that family. I really mean that. Which, okay, like you might think that and that's 
maybe you're thinking that's a comforting thing to say but on the day of their funeral like we it's honestly okay you don't need to say that because I think that's also like oh I wish it was me yeah they probably wish it was you too without being harsh like the, I just think that's not helping anybody um but that could just be me now Gillian Moran later sold the rights to her story to the Daily Mail and was interviewed by Linda Lee Potter is her name and her account was serialised into eight parts commencing on the 14th of February 1977. She has since never spoken to the media about the events at Pottery Cottage and plans to keep it that way. In December 1978 she remarried a man called Jim Mulqueen and who was actually a cousin of her husband. Um, We hear about that a lot so she married her husband's cousin. Two years later, she gave birth to a daughter and reportedly, due to the strain of, quote, emotionally supporting Gillian, it took his toll on her husband, who began drinking heavily. And in December 1987, he was jailed for two years for threatening a publishing, a publishing with a shotgun. That's not great. And also, I think her his emotionally supporting being the blame for it is fucking bullshit. Like your wife has probably been through one of the most traumatic things that anyone could go through and you're blaming your weird behaviour on her. Like, I actually have no time for that. At Gillian's request, she and Superintendent, Superintendent House met um, three months after the murder of her family and at this meeting she basically thanked him for saving her life, which he did, to be fair. Um, and in 2017, Alan Nichols, who unfortunately had died eight years previously, was awarded the Derbyshire Police Federation Bravery Award um, and this was accepted by members of his family. Now, there's not much out there, as we'd said, she sold her rights in 1977 and never really spoke about it again. But in December, um, sorry, uh, Literature-wise, I was reading the wrong bit there, sorry. <laughs> Literature-wise, The Pottery Cottage Murders, the first-hand account of a family held hostage, um, has been released the book, and I think that is definitely worth reading. And in 1982, a TV channel began the production um upon the Pottery Cottage murders. Um, and this was going to be, I don't know if it was going to be a film, I don't know if this was going to be a TV series, but the director was David Green and Julie Walters was cast as Gillian. However, the project was scrapped in 1983 due to public revulsion, basically. And I think they were like, actually, we don't want this to be a TV show. Um, which does make sense. And I think when I was speaking about this at the start and I said that this is a wild story when I was doing my research there were so many parts that I was like I've read this before or I've done this before but I don't think I had I think it's because there's been so many tv series about families held hostage about these kind of situations even books about it and I think it's obviously not all based on Pottery Cottage I don't believe everybody knows about it but this is like the real life version of that so I feel like a tv series about that situation while the only survivor is still alive I do get it it's a bit morbid and I don't think it should have gone ahead but I mean that was mentally 82 that was like what 40 years ago 40 years ago so it could be that that is something like in the future that they maybe make something of this but as I said there's been so many different tv series about it um, well based on that kind of story that I don't think there would be the need but that is the story of the Pottery Cottage murders which is wild don't you agree Samantha? Yeah that was awful 
um, crazy, yeah. Yeah, and you can only feel for the, the well, the whole family, and obviously Gillian. But you, you, it's one of those situations you'll never, you never, ever, ever, ever think this will happen. No, to you or anyone you know, and it does. And I like just can't just, imagine. And yeah, and I think there's some bits like reflecting on it at the end. There's some bits that I'm like, what would have happened? if she had gone to the police and I'm not blaming Gillian at all because you're right I wouldn't have gone you wouldn't have gone but like would there have been any difference but then to be honest Sarah and Arthur would have still been dead like they had been killed so would it have saved her mum and her husband you generally don't know that um but I think the worst part for me and when I'd made the comment about them playing cards and you said like well yeah the tab to it's because you always didn't it wasn't confirmed at that time that like he had murdered like their husband slash dad and their child and was then like game of cards and I'm like she must just think about that being like you were sat across like your family annihilator basically and you just were playing cards like you know you hear about people that try and like kill the people that murdered their family but she had to play a fucking game of cards with him yeah he's an awful man and I wish he obviously didn't just get shot because that's when I'm like he needs to suffer but then also he's now dead so good riddance yeah no absolutely I don't think the death penalty was in place at that time as well I know that in the prison he was in they had had the death penalty but I think it was gone by the time he had committed his crimes anyway so it probably would have been one of those that he was in jail and it would have been one of those like oh notorious serial killers blah blah that then yeah he'd probably been dead by now or whatever but I think even then though like he'd fought up into the very end which was just crazy but to kill a whole family in their own house as well oh it's horrible 